Lord, we are very blessed to have you as our Heavenly Father. We know that as fathers and grandfathers, whatever we may be, that we have been far from perfect and we have failed in many ways, and yet you have never failed. You are the Holy One, the perfect one, is our example, and we're so grateful for that. The Father who loves us, who goes with us, who forgives us, who helps us, we are grateful for the uh, accounts in the Word of God which help us to see what kind of a father you are, and yet there are many earthly fathers that are recorded for us in Scripture too, and in many of them we see examples of uh, action and thought and, uh, and words that come from the Heavenly Father, and yet in others we see fleshly action and we see failure. Lord, let us learn from all of these things that whether we be fathers or mothers or whether we have any children or not, we all need to learn from the truth as we see it recorded here that we might walk faithfully with you and be the example that you would have us to be to our family, to our friends, to our co-workers, all of those that are uh, near to us through the course of each week. We commit this day to you. We commit this hour to you. We trust you to be specially present with us here today. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paden Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. The one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding onto Esau's heel. So they named him, or call, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Last week, we came to the point of, of Isaac's prayer. For 20, approximately 20 years, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, Rebecca had been barren, no children. And so finally, not finally probably, Isaac had probably prayed many times, but now we see uh, the prayer brought to fruition. And last week we ended looking at some of the key elements that we need to be aware of if we want to be people who can pray effectively. And I just noted four of them, and I think those are four of the most important elements, but there are many others uh, in Scripture. In fact, I have a list of a dozen that I have uh, compiled, and it's far from complete, of uh, factors that are involved in prayer, 
in prayer being effective and accomplishing what God intends for it too. But in the case here of uh, Rebecca and Isaac, God answers, she conceives, and she becomes pregnant. It's interesting, though, to note that the answer to prayer does not always come easily. Sometimes there is difficulty in the actual answering of the prayer, and that is what Rebecca found here. She had a difficult pregnancy. Apparently, she was often in pain, and I think she was awake much at night with this battle going on inside her. And uh, after a while, it became of great concern to her. Now, although she had never been pregnant before and had never carried a child, she, from her contact with her mother and, and other family members and many in the community of those days, knew more or less what pregnancy should be like, and this seemed unusual to her. And she finally was driven to go to the Lord herself in prayer. And so she did so. And she sought the Lord, we're told. And what's interesting is the Lord had compassion on Rebecca, and God specifically responded to her, as we read there in verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. No wonder she was having so much trouble. <laughs> there are two nations in there. <laughs> two people shall be separated from your body. The one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Well, I think this was a bit of a strange answer as far as she was concerned. God told her flat out, you're going to have twins. And unusually, one of the twins, the elder, will actually be subject to the younger. Now, this was not the way it was supposed to be. This is not the way they functioned in those days. And I don't think she completely understood what was going on here or what God meant by it all. But it sure helps us. It helps us to understand a little bit more of Old Testament history when we see the words that God gives here, that the elder shall serve the younger. And we know that through the course of history, this has been a tremendous struggle. The struggle has not ceased. From beginning in her womb to this very hour, the struggle between those brothers and those nations continues. There's really an important concept here. Uh, the Hebrew word, which is translated struggled here, literally means crush or oppress. So, I mean, we're not talking about just a friendly little tussle here, you know, kind of a living room wrestling match. We're talking about two who are really at each other. I mean, this is a serious matter between these two brothers. And it began in the womb. Now, how can this be? You know, we, we can't even understand that. Uh, we know from the sonograms that have been made that, you know, a baby is more advanced than maybe we thought in terms of the things that a baby might do uh, in the womb. We've seen, you know, the pictures of the baby sucking its thumb and, and doing various things. But the idea of two babies in there in, in this struggle before they're even born is hard for us to grasp. Most of us probably don't remember too much of what went on while we were in the womb. You know, can you go back and think, oh, yes, I remember what my mother was doing when I was, you know, eight months uh, in, in there. Uh, probably not. In fact, most of us probably struggle with the first couple of years. Now, that doesn't mean 
that we're not conscious beings before we're, say, three years old. We definitely are. We're conscious beings from, from the time we're very, very young, and we have an awareness of our surrounding. We just don't have a memory of it that can be recalled. That's not to say it's not in our memory, but we're not able, most of us at least, aren't able to recall it. Whatever was in their minds, what, whatever was going on there, they were, they were actually in, in sort of a combat. There was a, a wrestling going on there inside the womb itself. The question, of course, that arises, uh, especially in our day and age, when there's this constant teaching in our secular society that, you know, this is nothing but a blob of tissue in there and it doesn't mean anything until it's born. Uh, so, you know, why, why be concerned about it? But when is a human being first truly human? This is the big question. And the courts haven't really ultimately resolved it because obviously they're not working from the foundation of truth even though that's what they think they're doing. There is absolutely, there's absolute certainty from Scripture that a human being is human long before birth. And birth is not the beginning of a human being. Let me just, these are popular Scriptures, I know, especially in our day and age when there's so much uh, pro-life and, and pro-death or whatever you want to call the different sides here. But in Luke chapter 1, we have really a fascinating account that we read about at Christmas time, of course, primarily. But Luke chapter 1, looking at verse 41. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Now, some would try to say, well, you know, the baby hiccuped or, you know, baby was just changing position, had nothing to do with Mary. Uh, this is the inspired word of God. If it says the baby leaped for joy, the baby leaped for joy. John the Baptist, we're told, was filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment of his conception. How can that be? We cannot comprehend that. We don't understand. But God is able to do what God chooses to do. This is obviously an indication that John the Baptist was a human being long before he was born. You can't fill a blob of tissue with the Holy Spirit. You can't have a blob of tissue leaping for joy, right? This is a human being. It was John the Baptist. Of course, the most often quoted scripture uh, by the pro-life uh, element today in our society is uh, Psalm 139, where David has been given such wonderful insight by God. Some like to just pass this off as poetry, but this isn't poetry. As you look at Psalm 40, uh, 139, you discover that there are three segments of verses. There's the first paragraph, which is the first six verses. There's a second paragraph, which is 7 through 12, and a third paragraph, 13 through 16, and of course, the remaining part of the chapter. But what's interesting is the first six verses deal with the omniscience of God. The second set of six deal with the, omnip the omnipresence of God, and the third set, the four verses there, deal with the omnipotence of God. So this, 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 this display of who God is, his 
omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence are displayed as David recalls or recounts uh, the very depth of a soul and goes back to the very moment of conception. Look, if you will, at verse 13. For thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them, meaning not one of them as a born child. The, or the days of the child were ordained by God before the child was ever born. God knows us in the womb because God created us. Each of us is a created individual. Oh yes, we're the, we're the product of the joining of the of the sperm and the ovum and, and, you know, meiosis and all that which goes on in there and the multiplication and ultimately the formation and the product of DNA and all this kind of thing. And we can see as we look at our children that we can see characteristics in us and, uh, as parents and we can see some of the not so good characteristics as maybe some of the better characteristics as we, we look at our children. But we have to understand that whatever the physical process is, whatever the biological process is, God has performed a creative act. They have, throughout the course of history, theologians have struggled and argued over the question of the origin of the soul. Where does the soul come from? That, that inner force within us which is beyond the biological, that which does, is not possessed by the tree or the dog or the mouse or the, or, or the, you know, the bug that which is eternal within us. Where does that come from? That can't be the product of DNA. You know, that can't be the, the, the product of, of meiosis. That's got to be something that God gives to us at the moment of conception and develops along with our biological being. Obviously, if it were something that went along with the DNA, then why don't the animals have it? Why do they not possess an eternal soul? because it is the gift of God, something that God has created and endows that person with, I believe, and I think the scripture makes it clear from the moment of conception. In fact, existed, and I'm not teaching the pre-existence here of uh, souls in the sense of somebody's souls out there wandering around waiting to be stuck in a body, but look, if you will, at Revelation 13:8 we get some kind of a real clear conception of the fact that although our soul does not exist in this world until the moment of our conception, God knew us long before. Revelation 13, 8, And all who dwell on earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. By derivation from this verse, we know that our names were written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world, meaning before God ever created heaven and earth. Our names were written in the book of life. 
Now we can extrapolate all kinds of things like from that. We can create all kinds of problems. We can have all kinds of arguments <laughs> over this concept. But it's clear in the scripture that you and I were in the mind of God before he even created this planet. My question has always been, if God knew, I mean, since we know God knew that Satan would have his way and this world would become a corrupt place and billions of people would choose to reject God, why didn't God junk plan A and go with plan B if he had one? No. Why did he go with this, this program? It's not ours to know in this life why God chose this uh, way to go, you know, fully. We can guess at it and, and we can look at the scripture and, and see what we think it's saying. But ultimately, the question is, why does, did God create a, a Lucifer who would become a Satan and who would do all of these things? We don't know. We can, you know, make our educated guess. But the scripture is plain. You and I are not the product of just DNA. We're the product of the mind of God. In fact, uh, I don't have it on the outline, but in James uh, chapter 1, verse 18, we read this. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Now, certainly this is talking about the born-again experience, but I don't think it's only limited to the born-again experience. I think it also includes the birth in the first place, that he brought us forth according to his will. And we have become the first fruits in the sense that we alone, of all God's created creatures, will be partners with him, will enter the kingdom, will be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Oh, you know, we, we, we see lots of nice, lovely animals in this world, but they don't have that uh, privilege, they don't have that call upon them that has been put upon us. And so, really, there's no way to look at it shy of knowing that a human being exists even before that, in, in the mind of God, that human being exists even before conception. Ellen. In that Revelation 13, mm -hmm. page, why does it say his name has not been written? Why, why is the not there? Well, the not is there because of the context of, of the particular passage. Uh, this is talking about the coming of the beast up from the sea, the one that we have termed uh, Antichrist because of, of other passages. And uh, it says in verse 7, he came to make war with the saints and overcome them and authority for every tribe and people and tongue and nation given him. And all who dwell on earth will worship him whose name was not, uh, everyone whose name was not written. Um, there's a scripture which says in, uh, was it Philippians, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means everybody from the beginning of time, whether we're talking about Nimrod or we're talking about Esau or we're talking about Ishmael or we're talking about Hitler or whoever we're talking about, every knee will bow. Some of them will bow on this planet but it won't be because they are bowing in their hearts. They're simply bowing because they have no other choice but what to bow. And in this particular case, of course, we're talking about those who are bowing to worship the Antichrist. Now, they're doing it physically here on this planet because the saints 
of course, have refused to do that. Uh, those who will bow to the Antichrist will one day be forced to bow to Christ, but that will be too late unless they, of course, do it here on this uh, planet before um, the end. So, from these passages, I derive the teaching that there never was a time from the moment of our conception to this very minute in which we were not fully, truly human in every sense of the word. We were never a blob of tissue. We were never just a little bit of protoplasm uh, causing discomfort. We were a human being from that very moment of conception. And of course, from God's point of view, even before that. What that means is, of course, that uh, it gives us kind of a proper perspective on abortion. And that is, of course, that it is a taking, is the taking of a human life. It's not just the removal of some uncomfortable uh, blob of tissue. And, of course, if it's performed, if, if abortion is performed only for the purpose of convenience or for social or economic uh, factors, then it becomes, uh, you know, clearly murder, as uh, Scripture would uh, teach. Uh, we are, I think, made painfully aware here in America and throughout the Western world that this has become such a widely practiced thing that we have a literal holocaust on our hands. In fact, I was reading, uh, well, the, the what's that uh, newsletter we get? National Right to Life Committee newsletter. And uh, they were advertising uh, in their uh, T-shirt you could get where it shows Hitler killed 6 million, America 30 million. And, of course, this is uh, putting the whole thing in perspective. And America's not alone in this. The whole West is, uh, is responsible uh, along this line with the same kind of Holocaust. And just as it was explained the way in World War II, so it's explained the way today. And uh, people accept the explanation, although it's irrational. Yes. Uh, going to Genesis, verse 23, it said that the Lord said to Rebecca, at this time, was the Lord's voice audibly heard, or was this be something that was maybe she heard in her heart, or was there someone speaking to the Lord to her? There's no indication that anyone else is involved, that it's a direct manifestation of God, whether audible in other words, could somebody else have heard it had they been there? Or in her heart, we, it, you can't tell. Can't tell. Uh, usually, when it's presented this way, especially in the book of Genesis, it seems to indicate that it was an audible thing. It does not say that she appeared, or that is, he appeared to her. Uh, so whether there was any physical manifestation involved with it in the sense of a, of a sight, we're not told. It simply seems that she goes to him in prayer and he responds to her in such a way that she knows the direct message from the Lord, whether she hears it audibly or hears it in her heart, can't tell. But uh, usually when it's written like that and you actually see the quotation there, we assume that it was audible. And God did manifest himself audibly very often uh, in the Old Testament, because obviously didn't have scripture like we have. Um, as, as an aside to what you were saying just previously about the, you know, us, the Holocaust and etc., we as Christians um, need to 
not uh, participate dramatically in, in picketing and this type of thing, but we need to take seriously this issue in prayer and our spiritual life and how we endeavor to spread the gospel throughout the world because, uh, you know, we have to pay if we take passively this type of, of, uh, of an effort that the world's putting on. Yeah. This, this, of course, is a real struggle, and, and we could spend a lot of time talking about it because there are different viewpoints as to what ought to be done here, as we well know. That's why I limited it Yes, and I, I tend to agree with what you're saying, Kendall, myself. And uh, I think we're all probably, and I, I shouldn't say we're all, I, I know that at times we're probably uh, remiss in, uh, in our prayer. But we definitely need to see a massive revival, I believe. Uh, if a, a great revival were to sweep this nation, it would change the complexion of everything. You know, if we could have an, a, another awakening like we had in the 1720s and 30s, or, or like we had in 18, early 1800s uh, during the presidency of Jefferson, unfortunately it didn't impact him very much. But if we, we could see uh, such thing, it would, it would radically transform this nation. And I think would lead to the election of different kind of people into public office than we're seeing today. It's, it's obviously, it's a, it's a major, it's a major problem. Uh, and, and the church is sometimes, I think, remiss in uh, putting its eggs in a political basket rather than really being out in front and charting the course and showing the way by right living and prayer and evangelism as you're saying. Yeah, it is hot in here, isn't it? What's uh, the deal? Is the, uh, yeah, I hear that. I was wondering if there's any control in here or not. Maybe it's the topic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's the teacher. <laughs> Teachers full of hot air, so. <laughs> the word of the Lord to Rebecca made something else clear to her, too, and that although the practice of the day was primogenitor, that is the practice of right of inheritance always going to the oldest son. That was the practice of the society of that particular day. God made it clear he wasn't limited to human convention. God doesn't have to function according to the way people think things ought to go. The younger son would be the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant, not the elder son. It is interesting to note, as you study the messianic line, how often God did not choose the eldest son to be the one to, to provide the uh, line on down to Messiah. I mean, we think of Isaac himself. Isaac wasn't the eldest son. Ishmael was. Jacob is not the eldest son. As we know, Esau was. Uh, Judah, where was he? You know, he was fourth down the line. He wasn't the eldest son. Uh, David was not the eldest son, he was the youngest son. Solomon was not the eldest son. And so on down the line you keep finding this. God chooses the one that he wants to be there, the one that he knows will be obedient and, and will, will fulfill the role. He's not concerned about whether he's eldest, youngest, or, or where he is. I think that's uh, 
really interesting about God. And it tells us something, too, uh, of how in our society, well, I shouldn't say our society, the society that we have seen throughout history, there's a tendency of people to put other people up on pedestals and, and to think that as a result, this line or this family is especially godly family and God ought to work here and to ignore some of the people who have behind the scenes been, been quiet, godly saints, particularly prayer warriors, and to not even acknowledge them. And yet when you look at the line of Messiah, not only do you not have the eldest sons, look at some of the women who gave birth to the one who would be the next person in the line of Messiah. You know, Rahab the harlot. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, Ruth the Moabitess. I mean, she wasn't even an Israelite. Uh, you, you look down the line, you think, my goodness, <laughs> does God know what he's doing or what? You know, God looks on the heart, not on the outward things as we do. And God doesn't feel he's got to, oh, that's the way the people do it? Oh, well, I better be sure I do it that way, right? No. God knew that Jacob would one day follow him. He also knew that Esau would be stiff-necked and disobedient. Therefore, God chose Jacob and rejected Esau as the transmitter of the covenant. Now, let's turn to that controversial passage in Romans. Romans, well, let, let me, uh, it's, it's Romans 9, but preface it by looking back at Romans 8, because I think these two verses in Romans 8 help us to work our way through these d difficult verses in Romans 9. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these also he called. And whom he called, these also he justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, obviously, it, it, it's stated pretty clearly here, but it hasn't been accepted to the point where it's totally resolved the whole question. Uh, that has been part of the struggle, at least from the days of Augustine, to the present over uh, predestination and free will. But, but to me, at least, there's a key here in, in the fact that it says, it prefaces the rest of the 29th verse with the four words, for whom he foreknew. Now, let's look now at Romans 10, uh, 9, 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to, to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now those who are diehard uh, Predestinarians will say that God from eternity past chose Jacob to be the transmitter of the covenant and Esau to be the one he would hate and condemn regardless of what they did. Now that is interesting, but that is difficult, at least for me, to bring together with our understanding of who God is. I have written in here in verse 13, 
just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, meaning I have chosen as my, the transmitter of my covenant, as the people of God. And Esau have I hated, meaning rejected as my people, not chosen as the transmitter of the covenant. And I think that's valid within the light. Let me, let me just read a verse to you. You don't have to turn to it. But uh, in Luke 14, we read these rather astounding words. Uh, they can be astounding if we don't think of them in the proper light. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You say, oh, you can't be a disciple of God unless you hate all your family. I've got to hate my wife and hate my mother and hate my kids. Then I can be a disciple of God. Is that what it means? Well, that's obviously absurd. You know, uh, you, you can't hate and be a, a, an apostle of love. What it means is, of course, that your commitment to God and your love for Him is so great and intense that in comparison, your love for your family could be, seem like hate. Not that there's hate in the sense that we understand hate at all. It's simply a statement of comparison, of relativity. We are to love our family. The scripture even teaches us that if we don't love our family enough to provide for them, we're worse than an infidel. So, I think that within the light of that, you go back to Romans here, God is not from the beginning of time saying, I'm going to create this man called Esau and I'm going to hate him from the moment he's born. No. Compared to Jacob, Esau will not be in the place of God's chosen transmitter of covenant. Because he knew what kind of a, a person Jacob would be and what kind of a person Esau would be, therefore, God cho chose the younger to be the transmitter and the elder not to be the transmitter of the covenant. Now, we talk about the sovereignty of God. God could easily have forced Esau to be the godly man and have forced Jacob to be the ungodly man and thus, as a result, kept the primogenitor uh, in place and not upset anybody's apple cart and uh, maybe avoided some of the troubles that were to follow between Rebekah and Isaac. But that's not how God functions. Scripture teaches us that God is not willing that any should perish. If he had hated Esau from before the foundation of the world and thus condemned him without Esau having a speck to do with it, then that could not be a true verse, that he was not willing that any should perish. And so we have to understand it within that light. Through his foreknowledge, he knew what kind of a man Esau would be. Esau placed himself in the, in the position of receiving the condemnation of God, not by the will of God, but within the sovereignty of God who has given us the right to reject him. That is still the sovereignty of God. That does not deny the sovereignty of God in one wit. God has the sovereignty to choose whatever he wants to, right? And he can choose to allow a person to reject him if he so chooses, and that's what he has done because the scripture makes that quite clear. Although Rebecca certainly related God's word to Isaac, she, you know, can you imagine her not 
telling Isaac about the answer to this prayer? That there are twins in my womb and that the elder will serve the young. Can you, can you imagine her not telling him? No. I don't think so. She told him. But what did he do? Very, very soon he began to show partiality towards Esau in contradiction to God's expressed plan. Now, Abraham at one point went against God's plan, didn't he? Um, and, and that's where Ishmael resulted. And then he went before God and he said, Oh Lord, that Ishmael might be the one. And God said, No. One from the womb of Sarah will be the transmitter of the covenant. So did Abraham go, eh, No, it's going to be Ishmael. No. Abraham said, okay, as you will. Did Abraham throw Ishmael out the door with hatred? No. He was very reticent to throw Ishmael out the door. But he did so because God said to. He still loved Ishmael. He was his firstborn. But he put his focus where it belonged, on Isaac. And that's why he was so careful to choose the bride for Isaac that would be the right bride for Isaac. He cared. He was obedient. He listened to God. He asked God. God said no. So he said, okay, then let's go with the plan. But what is Isaac's situation here? Isaac insists on favoring Esau, even to the point that it will drive Jacob out of the family and off hundreds of miles away for a long period of time. It's very interesting as you read through the Old Testament, you find this, this bright, shining example of Abraham, and you see the example of Jacob, not always bright and shining, but nevertheless there. And sandwiched in between, you have Isaac. Much less space given to Isaac than to either Abraham or Jacob. And uh, although he was a man of peace, he was also a, a man who was, uh, this is Father's Day, <laughs> wasn't really the best of fathers. In fact, um, he probably had something to do with the failure of his son Esau. One of the few descriptions of birth given in Scripture is given in verses 25 and 26 of Genesis 25. We're told that Esau was born first. We're told that he was ruddy and hairy. Now his name was Esau which meant pressed or squeezed because it was his heel that was squeezed by Jacob as Esau was born. So he was called the squeezed one, Esau. But he would also later on be given the nickname Edom, which means red or ruddy. Now, was he given that name because he was red or ruddy? Was he called that from the beginning? Well, it's not clear in Scripture. It's very possible he was. But it was certainly attached to him in Scripture from the moment that he chose to trade his birthright for some red soup, which is called Edom, there in the passage having to do with this red lentil soup that Jacob was cooking up there. Later on, well, let's, let's look down at verse um, 30 of Genesis 25. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. 
that Edom, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. So whether he had been called that because of his complexion, he definitely was called that because he was willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of red lentil soup. Now it's interesting also we discover that uh, his homeland, which was called in Scripture Mount Seir, Mount Seir means hairy mountain or mountain of the hairy one. So Esau made his impact as a ruddy, hairy man on the landscape. The second uh, son was named Jacob, which means grasper or supplanter, the one who would try to take the place of the other one. We're told in the last part of the passage we just read, verse 26, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. We're told that he was approximately 40 when he married Rebekah. Now he's approximately 60. And I say approximately because not only are these numbers round numbers, which causes us to have a little bit of suspicion, but when you start adding all these things together and figuring in the death of Sarah and everything, you, you discover that um, he was a 40-ish and now he's 60-ish. It's a plus or minus uh, factor here. And that uh, needs to be noted because the ancient Hebrews were not concerned with specific dates or specific chronology. It, didn't, it wasn't important to them. <laughs> you and I, we can't live if we don't know. Oh, it's 1020 now, you know. It's Sunday now. It's uh, June 20th now. Uh, we can't function without knowing all these things. But to the ancient Hebrews, it was no big deal. I mean, after all, if you spend all your life raising sheep, it's kind of irre irre irrelevant, isn't it? What day of the month it is or what time of the day it is. You know, it's kind of a drag no matter how you look at it. <laughs> um, in your opinion, is Scripture insinuating that Jacob was attempting to pull or hinder Esau from being born in order that he would be first? Mm -hmm. That's what it's insinuating specifically by the name given there. Now, we could argue, no, that's just what they called him because he had his hand on his brother's heel when they were born. But as you go on through Scripture, you get a definite feeling that this was part of the nature, the character of uh, Jacob himself. And uh, later on, he has a real struggle with this, and God renames him, but he keep, it keeps flip-flopping back to the old name. <laughs> what I find valuable about understanding something of the nature of these individuals is it gives us hope, <laughs> you know? Uh, because if everybody was perfect in Scripture, we'd say, oh, there's no way, you know, I'm going to make it. There's no way God's going to look at me or be, you know, care about me. But we look at these people and they have so many faults and, and failures and problems and they goof up. It just sounds like my daily diary, you know. And so <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can have hope here, you know. Now, where's Abraham? Well, we're not told where Abraham was. Uh, Abraham's about 160 years old at this point. He's raising a new family himself uh, at, at this point in time. But uh, the, the sons, the birth of the sons was certainly known to him if he wasn't at the actual uh, point of the uh, nursery. 
Let's uh, read the last verses in the chapter, verse 27. Now when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please give me a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Just be careful when you say, I'm starving to death, you know, where's dinner? <laughs> Could lead to some serious consequences. Uh, Esau wasn't starving to death, but uh, this was his perception because he was a man entirely focused on the flesh. And to him, to be greatly in hunger was uh, just all-consuming, and he had no thought for, for anything else. Now, it's interesting here as you look at this, the time span. What is the time span between verse 26 and verse 27? Verse 26, we have Jacob coming out of the womb, holding on to Esau's heel, and now suddenly in verse 27, it simply says, when the boys grew up, and, and goes on and talks about this event. Obviously, the childhood of Jacob and Esau was not important in God's mind to put in the Scripture. He didn't describe all the struggles and the battles the two boys had. They probably slugged it out on many occasions. And this, the, the bickering and the fighting that took place, you can just imagine it. Because as you read through this passage and, and later passages in the next chapter, here you've got Esau and Isaac, and here you've got Jacob and Rebekah. You've got two, uh, two opposing alliances here within the home. The home is divided, mother against father with one son on each side. Not a good scene. Not a good scene at all. But that's what we find here in Scripture, the forming of sides. Verse 27 tells us something of the nature of the two boys. It says, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. We have, I think, often a distorted view of what this is saying here. The scripture says he was a skillful hunter, meaning he was a knowledgeable hunting man of the field. Many think that this was a very commendable thing. Here was a he-man. You know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know. <laughs> with his rapid-fire bow, you know. <clears throat> but as you read this passage, what you really discover here is that here was a man who was much more interested in shirking responsibility than in doing what he needed to do. He was more into the thrill of the chase than into honest work. Now that is not to say that hunting has never been honest work or valuable labor. 
There have been societies, and there still are societies today, where hunting is absolutely essential for the ongoing survival of the community, and a skillful hunter is a great asset to that community. That is not to knock that at all, but we're not talking about that kind of a community. This family into which he was born was a pastoral family. They were, this was a herding economy. They had fields swarming with animals. They had sheep as far as you could look that way, goats as far as you could look that way, camels over here, donkeys over here, and cows over there. Thousands of them in all directions, over the hills and beyond. Nobody would have been worse off had he not hunted. The meat he brought in was merely variety and diet, had nothing to do with survival, nothing to do with the essentials of eating the next day. It was a non, his skill was non-essential and was developed primarily for his own pleasure and satisfaction and that of his father. There seemed to be no other use for the skill that he had developed as a huntsman. In fact, what he was was a rebel and he was unwilling to accept responsibility. Much easier to go out in the field and hunt and pretend like you're doing something important than to stay home and do the job that needed to be done. You know, get these animals sheared over here, get these animals slaughtered over there, get these here, get those there, take care of the business of the family. No, I'm going hunting. You know, and, and really, you see that in families in America today. Guys got some kind of a sport, whether it's hunting or, or driving these, these trucks with wheels as tall as you are, you know, and crushing cars with them, or whatever you do, you know. There are guys who've got these things that they're going to do. What's the real purpose of it? For their own satisfaction and to shirk responsibility of the home. It's, it has no other use. It's not valuable in the society. It's not even valuable for him or for the home to do that. In fact, we live in a society where we're so concerned about, boy, I've got to get home and kick up my heels and rest by the pool and sip my lemonade because I'm going bananas. You know, we're not going bananas. The human being can take a whole lot more than uh, we give credit for. We, we spend a whole lot more time relaxing than almost any society in history. And we make a, we make a passionate art out of it. And uh, we spend vast sums of money. You go back through ancient history and only the very limited few, like the, the wealthy of ancient Rome and ancient Greece, spend money like we do on very needless things. Uh, things that are not important and non-essential to the well-being of the person or to the family. And that's not to say we don't need some recreation or that we don't need some quiet time or we don't need that quiet time by the pool occasionally. But, but we, make, uh, we, we make a cult out of it, you know. And you look at television. What are they always doing, you know? Sipping beer out by the beach and, and all these things that they're, they're doing. It's like that's a lifestyle, and it is for many people. But this man was simply rebelling against responsibility. And it may be significant that the only other hunter mentioned in the Scripture up to this time is Nimrod. And Nimrod, we're told, was a rebel against man and God. And another man is Ishmael. And Ishmael, we're told, was a skillful archer and by implication probably a hunter and we're told he was a rebel. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who hunts is a rebel by any means. But this was their way in that day of shirking responsibility by having a, a skill which was non-essential. We find many other ways in our society which to do it. I know some of you may play golf, and I'm not knocking golf. I enjoy it. I haven't played it for a long time. But, you know, some people spend hours and hours and days a week out playing. And what is the real reason? You know, probably to shirk responsibility. 
it's, it's not that essential. It's not that important to be doing. And maybe it's avoiding doing something that is important. Now, Jacob, we need to just look at him, too. He's often given bad press. And part of this comes through the King James translation. The King James Version, uh, I don't know if any of you have it, but it calls him a plain man. Now, that sounds pretty yucky. A plain man, you know, just kind of a plain old milk toast, you know, uh, type guy. Uh, and, and so as you read this, you get the idea, here's Esau, the he-man. And there was a little skinny little milk toast Jacob over here, you know. <laughs> And this is the view we get. And we think, well, you know, God kind of goofed here. Why did he get this little squeaky guy when he could have gotten the real man over here to be the uh, carrier of the, of the covenant? But here we have a translation in the New American Standard. It says a peaceful man. But, you know, even that doesn't really carry the full meaning because the Hebrew word which is used here means complete, perfect. Perfect in the sense of nothing lacking, not in being like God. But a complete man, a whole man, meaning he, he knew how to laugh and he knew how to cry. He was strong and he knew how to be gentle. He was all these things. He probably could have hunted too, had he wanted to. There's no implication that he was a weak little milk toast. In fact, later on we know he wrestled with the angel of God all night. Esau would have been dead the first blow, I think. Esau was... Uh, I mean, and also you see this in the story about the soup. If Esau was such a muscle man and, and um, Jacob was such a wimp, why didn't he just go over and grab him by his ch uh, hairless chin and say, I, I want some of that soup or I'm going to knock your block off, you know? No, he doesn't. He bargains with him and he accepts the bargain because I think Jacob could have faced him off and taken him down. Jacob was not a weakling. I mean, J Jacob was a man of strength. I mean, he went off and... Anybody who sleeps all night out in the field with a stone for a pillow is, is not a weakling. <laughs> Maybe a nut, but he's not a weakling. <laughs> if you weren't a nut before, you'd be a nut after. I mean, the only time I did that was when my wife and I took a, a steamship across Lake Titicaca, and they had pillows, little tiny pillows, which were burlap, and they had straw in it or something like that. That's the closest thing to a rock I've ever slept on. <laughs> Didn't sleep as a result, of course. But, of course, maybe that's why he had the dream that he had, you know, with his head on that rock. I don't know. <laughs> let, let me just read a word to you uh, here. I know we have to quit. But uh, uh, Job, the first chapter of Job, we have another use of the same word. Job 1.8, For the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. The same Hebrew word is used here for blameless and upright that is used for Jacob. So we have to understand this. What we really have is Jacob, who is a serious, mature person for who, to whom God can speak. He's got his faults and he's got his failures. And, you know, as you read this account with the soup, Jacob is not faultless here. It's very possible Jacob planned the whole thing. And so it's premeditated. And, and it's, you know, trying to usurp God's plan. He knew that he one day would inherit the covenant, so he's going to work it out for himself, just like Abraham and Sarah did with uh, Hagar. So, I mean, he's not faultless here by any means. 
But when you contrast him, what is Esau? Esau is a carnal, immature, perpetual adolescent is what you've got here who's got no time for God. And so that's, that's you, what you have in these two characters here. And as you, as you understand it, as we understand it that way, we begin to understand the, the struggle that went on within the home because Re Rebecca was attracted to a son who had strength of character, who did the job, who, who was going to be a leader, who had some ambition, some thought for the future. But Isaac was over here fooling around with this, this, this adolescent because in some ways it was a vicarious thing for him to be able in Esau to do what I'm sure he kind of wished he could have done himself. But he didn't have, well, what shall I say? <laughs> Let's just give him credit. He had enough sense to know he'd better stick with what he's supposed to be doing than off shirking all his responsibility. But he kind of wanted to. And so here in Esau, he's getting to do that. And his appetite for game here, of course, plays a role in all of this, as do the lusts of the flesh so often interfere with what God wants to do in our lives and are allowing God to do that. And it's a real struggle. We were listening to Erwin uh, Lutzer this morning in the radio, and he was saying, when we get saved, why doesn't God just pull us out of this world? You know, so that we don't have to be subject to all the terrible things in this world and all the entanglements and you and I face entanglements every day, things that are out there that trip us up, and they're within us often. And we have an ally. I mean, the enemy has an ally inside us, and that's our own lusts and fleshly appetites. And uh, we can say, oh, Lord, why does it have to be that way? But God uses them for his purpose and for our betterment through time. Well, we'll uh, look at uh, Re Rebecca and... Uh, and Isaac and their relationship to their two sons and how this played a role in the event which, which uh, followed, the events which followed.